Reuben Sachs, A Sketch, by Amy Levi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reuben Sachs, by Amy Levi, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 9 Never by passion quite possessed, and never quite benumbed by the world's sway. Matthew Arnold The party was never prolonged to a late hour on these occasions, and by ten o'clock there was no one left in the drawing-room in Portland Place except Mrs. Sachs, Mr. Lunninger, Mrs. Conthal, and the young people in their respective trains. The elders had got up a game of whist for the amusement of old Solomon, the termination of which their juniors awaited in conclave at the other end of the room. Lionel and Sidney, meanwhile, sleepy and overfed, quarrelled in a corner over the possession of a bound volume of The Graphic. "'Judith,' said Reuben, who had taken a seat opposite her, "'do you know that you have made a conquest?' Is that such an unheard-of occurrence?" Reuben laughed gently, and Rose cried, "'It is Mr. Lee Harrison. I know it from the way he looked at supper.' "'Yes, it is, Bertie.' Reuben looked straight in Judith's eyes. "'He says you exactly fulfil his idea of—' "'Queen Esther.' "'Ah!' cried Esther Conthal. "'I have always had a theory about her.' When she was kneeling at the feet of that detestable Ahasuerus, she was thinking all the time of some Jew whom she mashed, and who mashed her, and whom she renounced for the sake of her people. A momentary silence fell among them. Then Reuben, looking down, said slowly, or oh, perhaps she preferred the splendours of the royal position even to the attractions of that youth whom you supposed her to, er, uh, have mashed. He was not fond of Esther at the best of times. Now he glanced at her under his eyelids with an expression of unmistakable dislike. "'I wonder,' cried Rose, throwing herself into the breach, "'what Mr. Lee Harrison thought of it all.' "'I think,' said Leo, "'that he was shocked at finding us so little like the people in Daniel Deronda.' "'Did he expect?' cried Esther to see our boxes in the hall, already packed and labelled Palestine. "'I've always been touched,' said Leo, "'at the immense good faith with which George Eliot carried out that elaborate misconception of hers.' "'Now Leo is going to begin,' cried Rose. "'He never has a good word for his people. He's always running them down.' "'Horrid bad form,' said Reuben, "'besides being altogether a mistake.' "'Oh, I have nothing to say against us at all,' answered Leo, ironically, "'except that we are materialists to our fingers' ends, "'that we have outlived from the nature of things such ideals as we ever had.' "'Idealists don't grow on every bush,' answered Reuben, "'and I think we have our fair share of them. "'This is a materialistic age, a materialistic country. "'And ours the religion of materialism.' the corn and the wine and the oil, and the multiplication of the seed, the conquest of the hostile tribes, these have always had more attraction for us than the harp and crown of a spiritualized existence. "'It is no good to pretend,' answered Reuben, in his reasonable pacific way, 
that our religion remains a vital force among the cultivated and thoughtful Jews of to-day. Of course it has been modified, as we ourselves have been modified, by the influence of Western thought and Western morality, and belief among thinking people of all races has become, as you know perfectly, a matter of personal idiosyncrasy. That does not alter my position, said Leo, as to the character of the national religion and the significance of the fact. Ah, look at us, he cried with sudden passion. Where else do you see such eagerness to take advantage, such sickening, hideous greed, such cruel, remorseless striving for power and importance, such ever-active, ever-hungry vanity that must be fed at any cost? seeped to the lips in sordidness, as we have all been from the cradle, how is it possible that any one among us, by any effort of his own, can wipe off from his soul the hereditary stain? "'My dear boy,' said Reuben, touched by the personal note which sounded at the close of poor Leo's heroics, and speaking with such earnestness, "'you put things in too lurid a light. We have our faults.' You seem to forget what our virtues are. Have you forgotten for how long, and at what a cruel disadvantage the Jewish people has gone its way, until at last it has shamed the nations into respect? Our self-restraint, our self-respect, our industry, our power of endurance, our love of race, home and kindred, and our regard for their ties—are none of these things to be set down to our account? Oh, our instincts of self-preservation are remarkably strong. I'll grant you that." Leo tossed back his head, with its longish hair as he spoke, and Reuben went on. And where would you find a truer hospitality, a more generous charity than among us? A charity whose right hand is so remarkably well posted up in the doings of its left. Oh, come, that's a libel, and not even true. There is one good thing," cried Leo, taking a fresh start, and that is the inevitability, at least as regards us English Jews, of our disintegration, of our absorption by the people in the country. That is the price we are bound to pay for restored freedom and consideration. The community will grow more and more to consist of mediocrities, and worse, as the general world claims our choicer specimens for its own. We may continue to exist as a separate clan, reinforced from below by German and Polish Jews for some time to come, but absorption complete, inevitable, that is only a matter of time. You and I sitting here, self-conscious, discussing our own race attributes, race position, are we not as sure a token of what is to come as anything well could be? Yours is a sweeping theory, said Reuben and, at present, I don't feel inclined to go into the rights and wrongs of it, still less to deny its soundness. I can only say that, should I live to see it borne out, I should be very sorry. It may be a weakness on my part, but I am exceedingly fond of my people. If we are to die as a race, we shall die harder than you think. The tide will ebb in the intervals of flowing. That strange, strong instinct which has held us so long together is not a thing easily eradicated. It will come into play when it is least expected. Jew will gravitate to Jew. 
though each may call himself by another name. If prejudice died, if difference of opinion died, if all the world, metaphorically speaking, thought one thought and spoke one language, there would still remain those unspeakable mysteries, affinity, and love. Reuben's voice sounded curiously moved, and in his eyes, as he spoke, glowed a dreamy flame as of some deep and tender emotion. Judith, leaning forward with parted lips, lifted her shining eyes to his face in a long, unconscious gaze. Reuben, with his sword in his hand, fighting the battle for his people, seemed to her a figure noble and heroic beyond speech. In her own breast was kindled the flame of a great emotion. She felt the love of her race grow stronger at every word. Reuben, conscious to the finger-tips of Judith's presence, of her gaze, which he did not return, was stirred on his part with a new enthusiasm. He praised her in the race, and the race in her, and this was conveyed in some subtle manner to her consciousness. Thus they acted and reacted on one another, deceiving and deceived, with that strange, unconscious hypocrisy of lovers. The game of whist had come to an end, and every one rose, preparatory to departure. "'Good-night, Uncle Solomon,' said Reuben's mother. She, too, was a Sax, who had married her cousin. "'Come along, mamma," cried Esther, yawning. "'I'm dead beat. The domestic habits of the cobra are not adapted to the human constitution. That is clear.' Reuben was standing in the hall with his mother as Rose and Judith came downstairs in their outdoor clothes. "'Your carriage is at the door,' said Israel Lunninger to Mrs. Sachs as he lit his cigar. Mrs. Sachs turned to her son. "'Aren't you coming, Reuben?' "'No, but I do not expect to be late.' He answered gently and seriously, stooping down and folding a shawl about her shoulders as he spoke. Mrs. Sachs raised her wide, sallow, wrinkled face to her son's, looked at him a moment, then, with a sudden impulse of tenderness, lifted her hand and stroked back the hair from his forehead. Ah, what had come to Judith, standing in a corner of the hall, watching the little scene? Ah, what did it mean? What was it, this beating and throbbing of all her pulses, this strange, choked feeling in her throat, this mist that swam before her eyesight. The dining-room door, near which she stood, was ajar. Moved by the blind impulse of her terror, she pushed it open, and, trembling, ashamed, not daring to analyse her own emotions, she sought the shelter of the darkness. While Judith was being driven to Kensington Palace Gardens, lying back pale and tired in a corner of the carriage, Reuben was sauntering toward Piccadilly, with a cigar in his mouth. For the moment his mind dwelt on the fact that he had not been able to say good-night to Judith. "'Where did she make off to?' he asked himself persistently. He was strangely irritated and baffled by the little accident. As he went slowly down Regent Street, which was full of light and of people returning from the theatres, the thought of Judith took more and more possession of him, till his pulses beat and his senses swam. Ah, why not, why not? Children on his hearth with Judith's eyes, and Judith there herself amongst them. 
Judith, calm, dignified, stately, yet a creature so gentle withal, so sweet, so teachable. He looked again and again at this picture of his fancy, fascinated, alarmed at his own fascination. Whatever happened, he would never be a poor man. There was the money which would come to him at his grandfather's death, and at his mother's, no inconsiderable sums. There was his own little income besides what his practice brought him. But it was not altogether a question of money. He had no wish to fetter himself at this early stage of his career. His ambition was boundless, and the possibilities of the future looked almost boundless too. He had an immense idea of his own market value, an instinctive aversion to making a bad bargain. From his cradle he had imbibed the creed that it is noble and desirable to have everything better than your neighbour. From the first had been impressed on him the sacred duty of doing the very best for yourself. Yes, he was in love, cruelly, inconveniently, most unfortunately in love. But ten years hence, when he would still be a young man, the fever would certainly have abated, would be a dream of the past, while his ambition, he had no doubt, would be as lusty as ever. Thus he swayed from side to side, balancing this way and that, pitying himself and Judith as the victims of fate, full of tenderness, of sentiment, for his own thwarted desires. He believed himself to hesitate, to waver, but at the bottom of Reuben's heart there was that which never wavered. He put the question by at last, wearied with the conflict, and gave himself up to pleasant dreams. He thought of the look in Judith's eyes, of the vibration in her voice when she spoke to him. Ah, she does not know it herself! Triumph, joy, compunction, an overwhelming tenderness set his pulses beating, his whole being aglow. It was late when, tired and haggard, he reached his home, and let himself in with the key. His mother came out on the landing with a candle. She did not present a charming spectacle on déshabille, her large, partially bald head deprived of the sheltering, softening cap, her withered neck exposed, the lines of her figure revealed by a dingy old dressing-gown. She gave an exclamation as she saw him. The wide yellow expanse of her face, with its unwholesome yet undying air, lighted up by the twinkling diamonds on either side of it, looked agitated and alarmed. "'My dear boy, thank God it is you! I have been dreaming about you! A terrible dream!' End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Dusty Purliers of the Law Tennyson Leopold Lanninger came slouching down Chancery Lane, his hat at the back of his head, a woe-begone air on his expressive face, dejection written in his graceless, characteristic walk, and in the droop of his picturesque head, which was, it must be owned, a little too large for his small, slight figure. He turned up under the archway leading to Lincoln's Inn, and made his way to New Square, where Reuben's chambers were situated. Reuben, the clerk told him, was in court, but was expected every minute, 
and Leo passed into the inner room, which was his cousin's private sanctum. It was two or three days after the Day of Atonement, and in less than a week he would be back in Cambridge. He paced restlessly to and fro in the little dingy room, with its professional literature of books and papers, pausing now and then to look out of the window, or to examine the mass of cards, photographs, notes, and tickets which adorned the mantelpiece. Leo was by no means free from the tribal foible of inquisitiveness. It was not long before the door burst open, and Reuben rushed in, in his wig and gown. The former decoration imparted a curious air of sageness to his keen face, and brought out more strongly its peculiarities of colour—the clear, dark pallor of the skin, the red lights in the eyes and moustache. "'Hello,' said Leo, still standing by the mantelpiece, his hat tilted back at a very acute angle, his restless fingers busy with the cards on the mantelpiece. "'A nice gay time you appear to be having, old man. Jewish Board of Guardians, Committee Meeting, Anglo-Jewish Association, Committee Meeting, Bell Lane Free Schools, Committee Meeting. Shall I go on?' Reuben laughed. "'You see, it consolidates one's position both ways to stand well with the community. And I am a very good Jew at heart, as I have often told you. But if you continue your investigations among my list of engagements, you will find a good many meetings of all sorts which are not communal, not to speak of first nights at the Turpishaw and the Thalian. Leo, abandoning the subject, flung himself into a chair, and said, "'Ah, by the by, how is Ronaldson?' "'Much the same as ever. It may be a long business. The doctors have left off issuing bulletins.' Reuben took the chair opposite his cousin, and then said shortly, "'You've come to tell me something.' "'Yes, I've been having it out with my governor.' "'Ah!' interrogatively. "'I told him,' went on Leo, leaning forward and speaking with some excitement, "'that I hadn't the faintest idea of going on the stock exchange, or even of reading for the bar. But my plan was this—to work hard for my degree, and then stay on on chance of a fellowship.' Everyone up there seems to think the matter lies virtually in my own hands. What did my uncle say to that? Oh, he was furious. Wouldn't listen to reason for a moment. I think—with a boyish, bitter laugh—that he rather confounds a fellow of Trinity with the assistant master at a Jewish boarding-school. The word usher figured very largely in his arguments. I think, said Reuben slowly, that you are making a mistake. "'Ah!' cried Leo, flipping out his hand. "'You don't understand. I can't live. I can't breathe in this atmosphere. I should choke. Up there, somehow, it's freer, purer. Life is simpler, nobler.' Reuben looked down. "'I quite agree with you on that point. All the same, you were never cut out for a university don. Do you want me to tell you that you are a musician?' Leo blushed like a girl and his face quivered. He did not altogether approve of Reuben, but Reuben's approval was very precious to him. Moreover, he greatly respected his cousin's intelligent appreciation of music. "'Do you think so?' he cried. "'That's what Norwood says. But there's plenty of opportunity for cultivating music. We have Silver up there, remember. He is immensely kind.' "'You might talk it over with Silver, but think it well over, and do nothing rash.' There is 
plenty of time between now and taking your degree. He rose and proceeded to take off his wig and gown. I don't know that my advice is worth much, he said, but I should say a year or two in Germany, Leipzig, Berlin, Vienna, and if by then you feel justified in setting your face against the substantial attractions of Capel Court, no doubt your governor can be brought round. You will have to put it to him, Reuben. He believes in no one as he does in you. Very handsome of him, but doubtless he will welcome the idea after the Usher scheme. You will have to paint the splendours of a musical success, cried Leo, his spirits rising, his white teeth flashing as he smiled. You must employ rather crude colours, and go in for obvious effects, such as the Prince of Wales, uh, the Lord Mayor, the Archbishop of Canterbury, seated in the front row of the stalls at St. James's Hall. Reuben laughed as he put on his well-brushed hat before the glass. I will impress upon him how fashionable is the pursuit of the arts in these democratic days," he added slowly, looking furtively at the lad. "'And shall I tell him that one of these days you will marry very well indeed?' Leo rose hastily, jarred, discomposed. "'Aren't you coming to lunch, Reuben?' "'Yes, I'm ready.' He smiled to himself, and the two young men passed out together into the paved courtyard of the old inn. They made their way up Chancery Lane into Holborn. Leo hated London almost as vehemently as his cousin loved it. It was the place, he said, which had succeeded better than any other in reducing life to a huge competitive examination. Its busy characteristic streets, which Reuben regarded with an interest both passionate and affectionate, filled him with a dreary sensation of disgust and depression. As they sat down to lunch at the First Avenue Hotel, Lord Norwood came into the dining-room. He was a tall, fair, aristocratic-looking young man, with a refined and thoughtful face, which, as he advanced towards his friend, broke into a peculiarly charming smile. Leo exclaimed with impetuosity, "'Oh, there's Norwood!' But as the latter approached, he stiffened into self-consciousness. Somehow he did not welcome the juxtaposition of his cousin and his friend. Acting on a sudden impulse, he rose and met the latter half-way, and the two young men stood talking together in the middle of the room. Reuben, after a moment's hesitation, rose also and joined them. He greeted Lord Norwood, whom he had met once or twice before, with a little emphasis of deference, which was not lost on poor Leo, who hated himself at the same time for noticing it. Lord Norwood returned Reuben's greeting with marked hauteur. That cousin of Lunninger's was a snob, was not a person to be encouraged. In the young nobleman's delicate, fastidious, but exceedingly borné mind, there was no mercy for such as he. Reuben, though he showed no signs of it, was keenly alive to the fact that he had been snubbed, was alive no less keenly to the many points in favour of the offender. The Norwoods were people whom it hurt the subtler part of his vanity not to stand well with. They were not rich, not smart, not politically important, but in their own fashion they were people of the very best sort, true aristocrats, such as very few remain to us in these degenerate days. For generations they had borne the reputation of high personal character and of scholarly attainment. They were, in the true sense of the word, exclusive, 
and their pride was of that nature which, as the poet has it, asserts an inward honour by denying outward show. The friendship existing between Lord Norwood and Leo was founded on mutual admiration. The Jew's many-sided talent, his brilliant scholarship, his mental quickness and versatility, above all his musical genius, had fairly dazzled the scholarly young Englishman, who loved art, but had not a drop of artist's blood in his veins. Leo, on his part, had fallen down before the other's refinement of mind and soul and body, and before the delicate strength of his character. It was a strange friendship, perhaps, but one which had stood, and was destined long to stand, the test of time. Meanwhile Reuben, who knew that it is half the battle not to know when you are vanquished, quietly invited Lord Norwood to join them at table. He pleaded coldly an appointment with a friend, and after a few words with Leo withdrew to a further apartment. Leo had taken in the slight, brief yet significant episode in all its bearings, hating himself meanwhile for his own shrewdness, which he considered a mark of latent meanness. Reuben returned thoughtfully, if quite composedly, to the discussion of his roast pheasant and potato-chips. His method of wiping out a snub was the grandly simple one of making a conquest of the snubber. Persons less completely equipped for the battle of life have been known to prefer certain defeat to the chances of such a victory. But Reuben was possessed of a bottomless fund of silent energy, of quiet resistance and persistence, which had stood him ere now in good stead under like circumstances. He appraised Lord Norwood very justly, recognised instinctively the charms of mind and manner which cast such glamour over him in his cousin's eyes, recognised also his limitations, with an irritated consciousness that he, Reuben, was being judged at a far less open-minded tribunal. In such cases it is always the more intelligent person who is at a disadvantage. He appreciates, and is not appreciated. I have no intention of following out Reuben's relations with Lord Norwood, throughout which, it may be added, he had little to gain, even in the matter of social prestige, for he numbered people far more important among his acquaintance. But it was not long before an invitation to Norwood Towers was given and accepted. By one, at least, of the people concerned, however, the circumstances which had marked the earlier stages of their acquaintance were never forgotten. A few days later saw Leo back at Trinity with his lexicon, his violin, and the friend of his heart. Here he alternately worked furiously, and gave himself up to spells of complete idleness, to sauntering sociable days spent in cheerful, excited discussions of the vexed problems of the universe, or long days of moody solitude. At these latter times he pondered deeply on the unsatisfactoriness of life in general, and of his own life in particular, and underwent a good many uncomfortable sensations which he ascribed to a hopeless passion for his friend's sister. Lady Geraldine Sydenham was a gentle, kindly, cultivated young woman, who had not the faintest idea of having inspired any one with hopeless passion, least of all young Lunninger. She was two or three years older than Leo, a thin, pale person with faint colouring, a rather receding chin, 
and slightly prominent teeth. She dressed dowdily, and even Leo did not credit her with being pretty. Indeed, he took a fanciful pleasure in dwelling on the fact that she was plain, and in quoting to himself the verse from Browning's Too Late. There never was, to my mind, such a funny mouth, for it would not shut. And the dented chin, too, what a chin! You were thin, however, like a bird's. Your hand seemed, some would say the pounce, of a scaly-footed hawk, all but. The world was right when it called you thin. Meanwhile in London Bertie Lee Harrison was celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles as best he could. He had given up, with considerable reluctance, his plan of living in a tent, the resources of his flat in Albert Hall Mansions not being able to meet the scheme. He consoled himself by visits to the handsome succoth which the Montague Cohens had erected in their garden in the Bayswater Road. End of chapter 10